Mark Lamos sat down for a one-on-one interview in June of 2000. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Mark and I had a conversation a few weeks ago in San Francisco, one of our uh, programs in other cities, and uh, I didn't get a chance to tape record that event. I was actually very sick when I interviewed Mark, and uh, it was, uh, so I don't remember anything he said, so I'm asking him questions, like, as if it was for the very first time. Um, Mark was in San Francisco directing a production of Edward II at uh, American Conservatory Theater. Um, what can you tell us about the experience of directing that play there? How, was that? How did that go for you? It was thrilling, actually, because I'd done so much um, musical theater and opera in the previous 12 months that I hadn't done a play in a long time, and it was um, a play I'd wanted to do for years and years and years first wanted to do it at Hartford Stage um, the year that Stan Wojewski took over Yale Rep and Stan was thinking of doing it there so I called him and said you know is it, are you going to do it really and he said yes absolutely so I thought two two plays by Marlowe about a queer medieval king were uh, within 40 minutes of each other in Connecticut were probably at least one more than anybody needed in the area <laughs> um, so when Carrie Perloff at ACT asked me if you know there was something I wanted to do, it was during the Monica Gate situation, and uh, we, I said I'm just so fascinated by the you know intersection of, of sexual desire and politics and populace and the sort of hounds from hell feeling of the prosecutors and the moral state of the nation. All of that, based on you know, kind of a few sexual, a few sexual fumbles in the Oval Office, and uh, and we began talking about Edward II, and I thought it would be a good city to do that play in because of its its you know gay identity, and I also wanted to because the text of the play is is not is not particularly wonderful. I mean, it's it's Marlowe, Marlowe really tried six experiments with the theater and then was murdered. And each one is, is an amazing way of making a play, and a very experimental way. And um, in this one, he used a very dry kind of mouse brown verse. It's mostly I am the contaminator, but it's extraordinarily unbeautiful to listen to and speak. But it does have the great Marlovian rolling iambic beat that Shakespeare uh, uh, experimented with changed, made more delicate, more more fine more subtle, but the Marlovian iambic is is like a sturdy oak and um, the so I took the text and then with the dramaturg there, Paul Walsh, who's a wonderful wonderful theater man, he'd spent a decade at Chapter de la Jeune Moon Minneapolis, working with Dominique there, and so he was very open to recreating the text completely. I said, "Look, I'm not, you know, if this were a Shakespeare play, I'd be very, very uh, 
cherry of this, but because it's Marlowe and because I have this agenda about this play and about homophobia and power and, you know, poly political power and sexual power, etc., etc., I want to make this an evening about that. And we even toyed for a while with retitling it, calling it a version of, you know, giving it a name and then calling it a version of Marlowe's play by Mark Lamus and Paul Walsh. At, by the time we opened, the play was... Had 1,400 lines had been excised. Uh, nearly as many had been rewritten by us in iambic pentameter. Um, uh, and it ran just a little over two hours. The, the, if you sit and just read the Marlowe text, it really almost takes three, three and a half hours. It's a very long play. And I just, you know, for the first time, I kind of felt liberated about working with an Elizabethan text. I, I'd always worked with Shakespeare. They're such brilliant artifacts of their time. They're such great constructions of poetry, even the youthful plays, that you really don't tamper with them too much. I mean, I rewrite little things in Shakespeare when I'm doing them, only to make the playwright's intention clearer for a modern audience. But with this, I just, I cut characters, I cut, I cut a whole subplot. I cut the only other woman in the play and left only Isabella, as the, the one female in the, in the whole male cast. And... And then just let rip with um, ideas. And, and it became this really liberating sort of five weeks, totally supported by this wonderful theater company and um, who very much sort of were embracing the idea of doing this big visceral production. I was very much energized by the conservatory part of the American Conservatory Theater because I, I was able to use four guys from the first year the conservatory, and I had three graduates, so I could fill the stage with with guys, which I really, because I was really exploring masculinity as well as homophobia, as well as you know, effeminacy, all those things. And um, it's pretty graphic. Practice. It was very graphic because I wanted to. I also wanted to see how pornography, how much pornography I could put on stage. I mean, pornography is so much the uh, it, you see it in film all the time. I mean, in any any kind of film, two people will tumble into bed and and, and have relatively explicit sex, um, mostly heterosexual sex. But you know, in you know, starship movies and stuff. And I thought, gosh, you, you rarely see that on stage, you know. Um, and there are a whole lot of reasons for that, I suppose, which we can talk about. But um, most of them hypothetical, I think. But um, I thought I want to I want to show sex on stage and I want to work on that and I want to work with actors on that and see how far I can go I want it to be erotic um, I want to exercise my own feelings about what I find erotic and I also wanted to use the, the, as much violence as I could in again in the same liberating and creative way that you see in film and have for decades now uh, and again rarely see on stage I mean there is verbal violence in mammoth for instance, there's all kinds of violence in Sam Shepard, but I really wanted graphic, gratuitous violence to stand for a way of being homophobic. And and some of that violence then crossed over into the erotic nature of the production. You talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned exploring how to work with actors on that kind of sexual material. How could you give us some insights in how you do that, how you work with actors to get them to that point? Well, it was my... It's my second time doing that in, a, in you know a career that's now like 23 or four years of directing. 
Um, the first time was doing Eccles when I was first starting to direct. You know, that play by Peter Schaffer, and there's a scene where the boy and the girl right. take their clothes off, and, and then he, I can't quite remember the plot, but I think he, he's frightened of it, and he can't, he can't have sex, and she wants to. And that's the scene. There's a little bit of intimacy. This was, the production began with four men in an orgy, and... Um, and uh, it was interesting <laughs> to work on because um, because it was sort of the you know to be blunt it was one of the most erotic things imaginable. I mean, telling people what you would like to have them do and then having them do it. I mean, <laughs> um, and it turned out I certainly didn't ask anybody about it uh, or inquire in any way, but it turned out that all four of these guys were straight. Uh, found out practically like before opening night. Um, so it was sort of amazing the way they threw themselves into it. They were, you know, they were very good. Uh, they there were things they didn't know. That's where I started to think, hmm, maybe there, maybe some of these guys aren't. But anyway, um, but they they really did it. It was amazing how they how they worked on it. We had closed rehearsals with just the stage manager, who was male, and me. There was one scene of heterosexual uh, sex coming to orgasm with dialogue. This first scene was, was a sort of prologue-y thing that took place while Edward was being crowned. The second big scene um, was between Isabella and Mortimer and actually involved dialogue in the play and then, and then she has an orgasm and on they go. Um, the heterosexual scene was actually much more problematic because the one of the actors had issues about it uh, because of, uh, well, the woman had issues about it because of her boyfriend. He was very upset that she was doing this. Um, he's a director, so I was sort of amazed that you know they were they had these problems, but they did, and they were huge. And he was certainly in the in the room. I mean, in in spirit while we were working on those scenes. It was interesting because how do you, how do you relate to her? Well, all of a sudden, I'm not much of a. I don't like doing a lot of psychiatry as a director. I mean, I really, I'm not. I am not in this game. I'm sure you know if I were on a couch, some somebody would find out that I really do want to sort of fuck with people. But in fact, I'm not in it to do that. I'm in it to make productions and to get ideas I have on stage. And I don't much care to. I, I don't care to really know about their personal lives. I, I don't really socialize with actors very much because um, I just, just don't I feel I don't feel comfortable, and I don't think it's really appropriate. However, because of this, we did have to sit and talk, and and a lot came out from both of the actors, and it was tough for me to deal with because I don't do that. All of a sudden, I was talking to her about her boyfriend, many many years long term boyfriend. I. Then, then the guy playing Mortimer uh, revealed uh, uh, that his girlfriend and that his fiance and he had just decided to postpone their wedding when he decided to take his role, and so a lot of stuff that they needed to talk about. You know, the whole rehearsal, which was again the closed rehearsal. Although I had asked for a female um, a, a, a ASM to be there, so there was another woman in the room besides the actress. Um, uh, the whole rehearsal became about that, and we really didn't get any blocking done. And then when we did come to the next rehearsal, uh, the whole thing became about, it was like a ballet with sheets. They didn't want to show anything. They were very uptight. And I had 
kept these rehearsals of the sex scenes completely private until the run through, so that you know, so that it was as unwayeristic and unprurient as possible, and so that frankly the actors could really concentrate on acting these scenes. Isn't there a point at which Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, I'd never done this before, but immediately the first day of casting, the uh, casting director said, "You know, you you have to tell them that um, you have to ask them if they're okay with nudity and okay with simulated homosexual sex." So that was a huge sort of hurdle to get over because I was, you know, blushing and babbling, <laughs> saying, "Now, um, how do you feel about uh, nudity on stage?" and it was interesting to, to, and you do have to do it with absolutely all of them, and their agents need to be told before they come in, so you, nobody's embarrassed, and, and you still have to ask them. But um, two of the men of a long day of casting, about 35 guys, two of the men became very touchy and uptight about it, and kind of angry that they were asked after their reading. Um, none of the women... And all of the rest of the men were completely, I was shocked at how uh, okay they said they were. Then, you know, some, somebody cynically said, well, of course they want a job. And I said, well, then they've got one because they can't, they better not lie about this. Because the ones who did say, I ended up casting, in fact, one of the guys who said, I have a real problem with that. I don't want to take my clothes off on stage. And uh, I really could not, I don't want to simulate homosexual sex or heterosexual sex on stage. Uh, and I looked at his resume, and there was a lot of Catholic University, and you know. And I thought, fine, totally cool. I ended up having him in the production. He ended up not being, not being in any of those scenes. But um, for the guys who said, "Oh yeah, it's not a problem for me," they were instantly plucked and chosen to um, to do this this sort of orgy at the beginning. And and you originally rehearsed it all the moves with everybody clothed, correct? Mm-hmm. Clothes on. Yeah. And I said, you know, and then at each rehearsal, I had a lot of rehearsals. <laughs> they were saying, do we have to do this again? Yes, because I wanted them to feel comfortable enough with the explicit nature of it to get to the point where they would say, yeah, I'm ready to take my clothes off now. And finally, they did in one rehearsal. How, and then how far into the process? The guy playing Gaveston, who had done stuff like this on stage before, um, just said, oh, hell with it, shut their shorts and did it, you know. Um, the other guys didn't want to do it until they were on stage in a dress rehearsal, and, uh, and that was fine. And I said, "You just you better undress rehearsal. You better do it in the dress rehearsal because uh, you, you just for safety's sake, understanding where your costume pieces are, how you get off stage in bare feet, blah blah blah." And then the the staff was also wonderful about who would be backstage while those scenes were on stage, who the dressers were. Everybody was informed. The crew was informed that. They they weren't to be watched. They weren't to be watching, etc. And they were great. They were very, very good about it. And ultimately, it 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 was fine. Ultimately, the heterosexual scene I thought worked very, very well. Basically, you know, I just said to her late in the game, um, if this looks like I'm being coy with the straight sex, I, you know, I can't. I, I won't. I really make the production suffer gay sex is so explicit. And she said, I bet you didn't have these problems with the men, did you? I said, no, not at all. Not in the least. And there was another scene of, of, of pretty explicit gay sex that didn't get down to the actual act, um, but it involved on the clothing and everything. And again, 
no problems. Absolutely no problems. So, but you know, I would assume that those would. I would. I was sort of prepared for a lot of problems to come up, and I was very uptight about going into it. I think what we talked about, and I had just started doing it. Right. I was still kind of clenched and nervous because I thought, well, these have got to look right. And ultimately, all of the sort of eroticism of the moment goes absolutely away, and you are focused on: is this going to is this going to look the way you want it to look? Will it be acted well? And and all of the sex scenes in the production were in opposition to other scenes. There was never sort of a stage devoted solely to that, so that it was always ironic while the sex scene was happening between Mortimer and Isabella, two enemies of. Mortimer's were being hanged on the other side of the stage. During the first gay orgy, Edward was being crowned, and he saw him with his son and his wife, Bishop, Archbishop of Canterbury. So each time, you know, and when um, when uh, he meets Spencer and Baldock, two gay retainers, two homosexual men who decide to weigh in with him, and they begin to have an orgy in this production um, at Gaveston's behest, his lover's behest. On the other side of the stage, you see all the homophobic barons sort of getting angry and gearing up for battle. So the it was never, you know. And I didn't want it to be that. I wanted it to be. So through the process of the play, and you were trying to explore these issues of uh, sexuality and, and politics, um, what did you either learn about that or learn about yourself as a director by the time the process had been completed? I, you know, I didn't learn anything because I, I just kept... I didn't want to. I didn't want to stop myself and think about what I was doing. I wanted to continually stay open to every impulse inside me. And I was having such a good time working on it, and the company was so completely obsessed with working on it as well. I mean, everybody got so behind it that it was just this sort of exhilarating. I'm going to get this thing out into the world, and I'm going to think about it later. You know. And when Carrie, bless her heart the artistic director, you know, she would take me to breakfast and say, now, let's talk about, I don't think there's enough depth in this character and I don't think there's enough this. I would just say, you know what, I, I can't talk about it. I, I'm sure you're right, but this is exactly how I see this. And I'm giving you, I'm not being defensive, and I'm not, I like her enormously, and she's very smart, but she said, this is it. This is what's coming out of me right now, and there's no stopping it, and I can't change it. I absolutely can't change it. It's not like doing a naturalistic play where you say, well, you know, she needs a little more of this, the producer says. Or the, go, yeah, you're right. You go back into rehearsal and you get that. Or you have a problematic moment or whatever. This was on a day-to-day basis about how far can I go in terms of the theatricality of what I want to put on stage. Because it was also just a vividly theatrical production. I was using all these big theatrical gestures. And at the last rehearsal in the um, rehearsal hall, as everybody was sort of launched and getting ready to go, into um, into the theater, I added a two-minute sort of march dance sequence with all the men. Just, I, th- I just thought of it that morning. I thought, I want to put this in the production. You know, everybody rolled their eyes and thought, oh my God, you know, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be like doing the run-through, run-throughs. And I said, nope, nope, we're in good shape. I, I really want to have this in the piece. And that went in the piece and everybody worked on it very hard, you know. But it... It was amazing how I, I, I thought afterwards what it would have been like with a company of recalcitrant actors, or worse than that, uh, a theater production team that decided they didn't care for what you were doing. Which can, you know, as you, I'm sure a lot of you know, slammed on production faster than anything on earth. Yeah. When you're when you're going that far out on a limb, yeah. 
but I didn't mean to be glib about saying I, I didn't really learn anything, but I, I, I think I'm at my best when I'm not intellectual, just trusting a kind of instinctive. The intellectual part is the study of the text and working out the poetry and working out a design scheme with the designers. That's very, very, very intellectual for me at any rate. Very, you know, reading tons of dramaturgy, talking to dramaturgs about it, hearing the actors read in auditions and judging how you ought to cast, all of that intellectual stuff happens. Then in the performance, in the rehearsal, I have to just completely trust my instincts and not let anything get in the way of that. And I try not to go home and say, you know, gee, I think I made a mistake at that rehearsal yesterday, or I have to just keep plunging ahead. That's when I'm at my best. I mean, I know that about myself now. And it's sometimes I have to remind myself if I get the the squirrely feeling or if I'm getting an actor who's balking or whatever I have to remind myself to try to override that Interesting. well I'm going to take a look back now and find out a little bit about how you got to uh, be where you are now from uh, from your experiences in the past um, so we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about your uh, earlier career when you started out you actually were studying to be a violinist isn't that right? right yeah and um, was music always a part of your life? Mm-hmm. Big part of my life. Uh, my mother was a pianist, a very good pianist, and um, so we always had music in the house. And I, from an early age, made it clear I wanted to play some instrument of some kind. And uh, so, from I think second or third grade, I was studying violin, and I got into college, Northwestern, on a music scholarship. So, where where did the change come from? Uh, um, music to theater. I'd always loved being in the theater, and you know, in grade school, playing in shows and the skits and stuff. And, uh, in high school, I was acting in a lot of plays, and then in college at Northwestern, the drama school there is so sort of uh, starry that uh, I was I found it irresistible, and um, got into a lot of productions. And it came to a point where. I was supposed to be in the orchestra of, a, of an opera performance at the School of Music, and uh, I was offered a role in The Lark, you know, Henri's play about St. Joan, wonderful part, and, uh, and uh, I asked the conductor if I could uh, get out for two of the opera performances. And he rightly just read me the riot act and said, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to be a violinist, or do you want to be an actor? And I... I left his office. I called my parents. I said, I'm going to be an actor. And, you know, after years of paying for lessons, after a scholarship that was then taken away in my third year at Northwestern, and believe me, certainly didn't have money. My father and mother worked in the greenhouse. Um, uh, they were incredibly supportive, but, um, but I went into the theater in my senior year in college and got a degree, ended up getting a degree in speech education because my the Vietnam War was happening and I didn't want to go there and my uh, dad said, you better get a teaching degree so that you can get out of, you know, battle and have something to fall back on and all that. Not that I would have had it if I was a violinist, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And it was horrible, but I did it. And it was uh, right away started acting the minute I graduated from in Chicago, area. in Chicago, and, and 
in, in New York. Yeah. And what, where, when did the transitional period come when you went from um, acting to directing? About ten years into acting, I was had done some stuff in New York. I was at the Guthrie Theater for about four years as an actor, and um, there I directed a little bit at somebody's suggestion. Enjoyed it, but I never thought I'd be a director. And then came back to New York, was, was working as an actor, and I got a call to um, to come and, would I be interested in acting in and directing at a new Shakespeare festival starting in Visalia, California, this sort of Steinbeck country, this weird place. Um, and I said, oh, sure. You know, The idea was that Michael Langham was going to direct um, Romeo and Juliet, and they wanted to, a young director to direct The Taming of the Shrew. He had suggested me, because he liked these two little things I did while I was at the Guthrie. And um, I was going to play Mercutio or somebody, or Benvolio, and, um, in his production, and then direct mine. And at the last minute, I can't remember why, it was health reasons or something, he had to drop out. They couldn't, they couldn't even look for anybody else. It was so late. They called me up and said, could you direct both? And boom. I did, and for some unknown reason, you know, the New York papers were there. I mean, it was one of those weird things, and Field knew about it, and um, and I never stopped working from that moment on. It's really amazing to have, as a young director, to have the opportunity to do two great classic plays with a really fine company of actors, which we cast uh, from New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, and Chicago. You know, I mean, the people behind this had big dreams, and and the festival only lasted two years. But John Conklin was the designer. You know, it was Pat Collins was the lighting designer. It, it was a phenomenal. Tom Hall uh, was the TD. Uh, it was just a phenomenal bunch of people that all came to this little high school auditorium in Visalia, California, and I bumped into someone who had recently been to that town at a school play there. And we started talking about that theater. And he said, that's one of the finest theaters I've ever been in in my life. I said, I know. It is. It's in this little high school in Nowheresville, USA, in the hottest part of California. And some local architect stumbled onto building this brilliant 500-seat theater. It's like, I've never been in a theater that good, except in London. Acoustically, sight lines, everything. Anyway... It was it was that that launched me in, in, as, as a director, and um, from that I went to the Arizona Theater Company for a year, an interim year, because the artistic director was ill, and they gave him a sabbatical. And my first month there, I got a call from the Hartford Stage Board asking if I'd be interested in interviewing for that job. For I artistic yes, director? For artistic director. This is after, after... I had done nothing. I'd done, I'd done four Shakespeare plays by then. And Equus and the Show Off and Two Little Plays of the Guthrie, you know, a Fugard play, Low and Goodbye, and Dear Liar. I mean, really, in terms of when you think about a directing career. But I think what helped it was that everybody in the field knew me as an actor. And that that familiarity, I think, helped launch it a little bit. I, I can't quite figure out why. You realize that that's not like a typical scenario oh, for most I sure directors. do. I really do. I mean, because I, I work very hard to get young directors work, you know, and and I know how hard it is. And, and this this guy was telling you, you know, 
this assistant of mine who recently sent me a card saying, I've just turned 40 and the children are wonderful. And he's still essentially at the beginning of his career. He's been assisting and working and he's finally gotten a, a kind of full-time job at a, at a regional theater, but he's just now kind of starting. And I think maybe because of the proliferating, because there are more and more people in this field, more more directors are coming out of training programs, more people are deciding they want to direct for some reason, that, that it, it's getting more like it is in Europe, where very often careers don't even begin until, um, you know, I mean, directors get, there are old directors. You know, it's, it's a job that, uh, I mean, everybody's enamored of young directors, there's no question. Everybody wants to hire some hot young thing, which is in the favor of hot young things. But I notice that it is, you know, when I certainly when I look around at the opera companies I work at, uh, I don't see anybody younger than me. And um, we're all in our 50s and 60s and 70s for the most part. And it's sort of shocking. You think, now, where, you know, why isn't some 30-year-old doing this? Well, you tell me. Mm -hmm. Safety or what? When you started at Hartford... Uh, and you had been artistic director at the theater in uh, yeah. Arizona as well? Yeah, just just sort of manquet, you know, just for a while. And yeah, then you moved great. to Hartford, and your artistic director of Hartford Stage, what, did you have any kind of artistic goals in mind when you were when you went there? Like, what, what, what did you want to accomplish? Well, I wanted to do a lot of classical theater. They had a big new space, and the previous artistic director, Paul Widener, who was very gifted at smaller plays and liked small work, he wasn't. He wasn't. He just wasn't that interested in big, big pictures. He was interested in verbal, verbally acute, small dramas. So suddenly he was sitting on this gigantic stage space um, with forty or fifty extra seats in the audience to fill, and thing. And he was tired after getting the theater open, and he left. I mean, they would have been happy to have him stay there for the rest of his life. Don't get me wrong, but he just sort of looked at that stage, I think, and thought, I don't think I want to do this. And they were looking, they looked at, I found out who the other directors were. And they were people with bigger track records than I was, sort of three of us who got down to the wire. Two of whom then went on to fantastic careers, artistic directors, really fantastic. Um, uh, but I wanted to, as a young director there, I wanted to do, involve myself in a huge dose of big classical plays. I wanted to explore, I made a list of a hundred plays the night I went into my last meeting with the um, search committee, just dreaming, you know, from the School for Scandal to Cymbeline to King Lear to you name it, you know. And then that was mostly what I wanted to do. And they were very eager for that because the previous artistic director had been more interested in new work. And they felt their audiences and their kids the high school audiences, etc., were hungry for more sort of high culture. And uh, then Bill Stewart, who was the managing director there, had been for years, said, you don't know anything about new plays, do you? I said, no. <laughs> you know, and he said, I'm going to take you to the O'Neill uh, in the summer. And suddenly we were there for three or four days seeing, you know, 20 new plays. And I got, we picked, I picked one of those for the first season. And then it moved to Broadway. It flopped immediately, but it was a wonderful, you know, it was a wonderful what story. Was it? it was called Einstein and the Polar Bear. Oh. It starred Peter Strauss and Maureen Anderman. They were great. It died. Manny Eisenberg produced it. But it began getting, you know, it 
began me working on a balanced diet, as every regional theater now does, of classics and new work. And, uh, and I became as avidly interested in new writers as I was in, in old writers. But I kept, for myself, for many years, I did the classics, and I, I let others do the new work, because I didn't feel I had the chops for it, and because, frankly, I wasn't as interested. I really wanted to work in this big space with big ideas, a lot of actors on stage, a lot of design. My personal goal was to do that for myself. And frankly, 17 years later, or about really 13 years later, 14 years later, I thought, there aren't too many more of these big plays I want to do. You know? Or if I do do them, I want to do one a year, not three. And I want to do them somewhere else where I don't have to worry about producing the theater. Just, I just want to do the play. So you were at you were at Hartford for seventeen years 17. as artistic director, and um, what uh, what were the highlights? What were the productions that really stand out for you in that time period that you directed? That I directed um, Twelfth Night. I did. Uh, that was Richard Thomas. No, no, uh, there were no sort of names in it. It was just a wonderful group of people in a beautiful play that I've always loved. Again, one of those things where I thought I took a big step personally in conceiving it. I did two productions of Cymbeline. One my first season, which became a kind of landmark because the play was so rarely done then and achieved a lot of notoriety and was a very personally fulfilling thing for me to do. And then I ended my tenure there with another production of Cymbeline um, because I wanted to revisit the play one more time. I thought nobody's going to give me this chance again. And I also wanted to see... What the journey? I thought by looking at the play again and myself in relation to the play again, I would know something about the journey I'd taken over 17 seasons. And I did sort of learn about myself. Um, and I was, again, extremely fulfilled by working on that play. There's just something about that play that speaks to me in a very deep, personal way. Um, was the uh, design approach very different in the two productions? Both were very, very visually beautiful. I was, I was insistent on the second time through it, though I had changed a lot as an artist or craftsman, an artist, that I wanted it to be sort of jaw-droppingly beautiful. I wanted people to gasp when the lights came up. Susan Hilferty designed a bunch of costumes that Paul Steinberg has set that made people do just that. And I wanted a kind of opulent, exotic, otherworldly fairy tale beauty both sets of designers. The first was John Conklin and Pat Collins. John did both costumes and set. And the last was Susan Humphrey and Paul Steinberg. Though they were very different to look at. And the, and the last one was far more sort of modern students' approach. There were still tremendous similarities. Strong design concepts have been, you know, in many of your productions that have been very important to you. What kinds of... Um, Relationships have you developed with designers, and how do those evolve? I mean, what, um, what do you look for in designers, and how do you um, communicate to them what you're really looking for? I really need a designer who's a dramaturg. So I, I, you know, the first time I really talk about a play, I talk about it with a designer. And by talking with a designer, I learn a lot about what I'm thinking about the play that I didn't even know about in the quiet of my study with the text and the dramaturgy around me books and the essays, I kind of fill all that, squeeze all that in, and then suddenly I'm sitting with a designer, and you know, she says, gosh, it seems like a 
beach blanket movie or you know all of a sudden their ideas start coming and by virtue of what I how I respond to them I begin to learn about how I think the play ought to be and um, or how I think the production ought to be so it's by the time often I get to the dramaturg who's sitting there ready to hand me a lot of ideas I have I have arrived and I'm telling him hey you know this is how I'm doing Romeo and Juliet this is how I'm doing um, um, as you like it or what have you. they're disappointed because they, they are they are a little bit sometimes I'll say to a dramaturg you know send me stuff I'm about to meet with the designers in two weeks and I'm still not sure what I want to do with this play I don't pick a play because of a concept I have in my head I pick a, I, if I can if I have the luxury of choosing a play I choose it because I love the piece and then very often I have to find out why I love the piece and that's the process of doing the production going towards that love affair. But by the time you meet with the designer, do you have a concept? Or? Very often not. No. I just know what I love about the piece. And either... Express that to the designer? Yeah. I'll say, this means a great deal to me because of this and that. This, or there's this problematic moment in the play that I don't understand. Do you? Very often one of them will say, yeah, I think it means this. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, I, I've come more and more to not more and more, but I, I love just sort of turning it over to the designer and saying, and I'll say to the designer when I talk to them, um, you know, I, I don't have a concept yet, so I'm really eager to see what you might be thinking about this. By the time that poor designer has shown me two models, I will have I will have come up with a concept or will have welded it into or onto what he or she has started to do. Um, so it's a it's a it's it's a process. It's definitely a process. It's rare that I'll say, okay, what we want is X, Y, or Z here. Um, and I also feel that in this day and age, it's it's it, the designer should be empowered as well. You know, um, I mean, just like the actor should you cast an actor because he or she is right for the part. But then, tell me what you're thinking about the part, dear. You know, there's something in you I like. So. Come at me with it. You know, come at me with it. It's a dialogue, really. Sometimes I think, you know, before I became a director, I thought, ugh, pitch touch directing, how dreary. They, you know, it's it's a non it's a non profession. Directors are simply traffic directors or editors. And you know, we are. I mean, there is this conceptual thing that happens. In the case of somebody like Bob Wilson, it, it overrides almost everything else, like a great choreographer. But you know, even the great choreographers will take a certain dancer, a certain body, and dance changes because of that body, because of the instinct of that dancer that the piece is being made. And um, it's, it's the same with me. As strong a hold as I tend to have on a production, these high-concept productions that I'm known for, mm -hmm. um, they are highly collaborative. A lot of bickering goes on, a lot of, a lot of give and take. So designers will come back again and again with different different things, and you'll go back and forth about it. Or they get angry, you know. Oh, you don't want to do that again. We did that in two other productions we did together. <laughs> you know. And, well, that's when you develop a relationship with a designer you use over and over, like John John Conklin, mm -hmm. and you have done several productions mm -hmm. together. You develop some sort of a shorthand way of working. That's uh, you also get into each other's heads, which mm -hmm. is an interesting or or terrifying place to be. <laughs> you know, because. It's, it's often, I mean, I, I, I look at the work of someone like 
Matisse. I'll just pick an artist out of the blue here. From, you know, the earliest drawings to the end of the life, you see Matisse, 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 right? Degas. Yes, there's development. Yes, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. But an early Degas looks like a Degas, and a late Degas looks like a Degas. And so when, you know, I'm working on something, and somebody says to me, Jesus Christ, you're not going to use China silk again. I think, yeah, you know, I am. Or fluorescence, <laughs> or uh, uh, what are the things I do? I mean, other people always make fun of, they have this list of things. They point them out to you, They right? point them out. And, you know, and I'm always coming up with them like it's a great new idea. That, <laughs> what if we do this with, like, six fluorescents that... Uh, not that again. We did that in the last five productions we did together. You know, so you realize at fifty-four that these things are adding up. But at the same time, but they're your personal, they're your personal sort of thing. You know, and, and and I, I, I sometimes just yesterday I had words with a designer because I wanted to do something with China Silk, and she said I can't if you if you cannot use China Silk in this production, and. The assistant to the set designer said, I'm not saying the words China Silk to him. <laughs> He's in Munich doing something else. He couldn't be at this meeting. I said, all right. What do you want to do? You know, and then they had like five, five ideas that were great. And I know that when I go to one of those ideas, it'll actually, I'll, I'm going to find something terrific there but that I can make my own. But um, it does get... China Silk is still staying in the back <laughs> of my mind. Silk, well, <laughs> it's an opera about a person who becomes a stream. So clearly, China Silk, you know, we, <laughs> what would you do, you know? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's an opera called Aces and Galatea, you know, the story from Ovid. The, the shepherd, Aces, is in love with Galatea. The giant, Polyphemus, is jealous. He kills Aces. She mourns him. She's a sea nymph. And, and her mourning tears, uh, she decides to, to exert her power as a demigoddess and turn him into water so that she'll, he will be of her element for forever and it's it's you know transfixingly moving I mean it really really is and um, the first idea we had to show you sort of where we went the first idea was that we would end the the opera with sprinklers with water sprinklers like yard sprinklers so that these you know lit in a certain way, she would stand in these sprinklers and sing this last aria, a long handle aria, as she became wet with him, you know, is the point, because he's now water. And clearly yesterday at the Tech at Glimmerglass Opera where we're doing this, you know, the water, it, we couldn't do five minutes of water uh, for various reasons. It was, we were testing with the orchestra pit. I was nervous about the instruments. There are drafts because it's a, it's a theater with that outdoor, you know, stuff in it. Blah, 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 blah. So we had to chuck that. And suddenly we found ourselves for the last hour of the tech rehearsal saying, okay, how do we end this off? You know? <laughs> and it was a very good thing to do, to talk through it. So what we're doing is sort of we both got what we wanted because she said, I won't design. Constance Hoffman, costume designer, blah, blah, blah. she said, I won't let you do China Silk. And if you do do China Silk, how will you get it on? Da, 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 da. So what we ended up with, and it's really her idea, but it's actually my idea too, is that we'll see Aces appear, and the, the setting, the, 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 it's, 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 a, it's a seaside, it's a beach, essentially. Um, but you'll, And it's modern dress, so they're in bathing suits and stuff. But you'll suddenly see him, and you'll see him dressed like a figure from antiquity, 
robes, laurels and everything. The robes will start to unwind and unwind and unwind and unwind, and guess what they are? Organza, <laughs> which functions like that as well. But it'll come from him and somehow be used with her as well. So the costume will sort of become the, the, the element. Yeah. Wow. Well, since you brought it up, I would like to talk about um, opera. When did you, you have been directing all these plays and doing plays at Hartford. When did you actually move into directing operas? I got, actually, one of the very first things I did was an opera. After this summer at Visalia, my first foray in the real grown-up directing, San Francisco Opera up the coast was doing a young artist's program, doing a new opera by a young composer named John Harbison based on Winter's Tale. Couldn't find a director. Nobody wanted to do this piece. Would I do it? Would I? Yeah. And so my first opera was actually a contemporary work. And, um, and then, you know, 25 years later, I got a phone call from John Harbison saying, you want to do The Great Gatsby? So an amazing kind of, you know... <laughs> moment. Um, what, is it, what is it about opera? What is it about opera that attracts you? Why do you, why do you like to do it? Oh, I don't know. It's, I love the music aspect of it. I love the fact that it, I love the fact that it's a kind of more abstract way of working than when you're working in the theater. I also like the fact that it's, um, you know, in, in plays, you're essentially directing actors towards naturalism, right? Towards a kind of realism. In opera, you are occasionally wanting things to look naturalistic, but you can't very often talk to singers about the way you talk to actors. So you replicate naturalism through a series of gestures. And it's a very interesting way to work, because all of a sudden you're kind of intellectualizing, you're faceting the instinct. And the instinct, for the most part, is all yours. It's a very egomaniacal uh, way to direct Oddly enough, saying that, in opera, there are far too many alpha males. You, know, you have the conductor, more often than not a man. You have the stage director, usually a man. It's a very, very old, old Thai network opera still. You wouldn't think that, but it is. Very few women are working in big positions in opera companies, except on stage as divas. But you go backstage, it's all guys. And brother, do they have their, do they have their pricks out? They're, it's tough. It's big, tough and everybody's battling to get it on, you know, and to get their vision on stage or in the pit. And you're you're always working in tandem with the conductor. You're always both on the bike, you know, and it's a unique experience for a stage director who is essentially, unless there's a huge star actor, uh, uh, is essentially in charge. You know, you're in charge as the director of the production in the theater. In the opera house, you are not. You are more often than not secondary. And even the, the sort of most notorious of us, like Zeffirelli or Wilson, are also secondary because ultimately, you know, the vine goes into the pit. Well, ultimately, the vine comes into rehearsal and just says, I want to take this more slowly. And something you've built up relies on a lot of interplay or whatever. You can't look completely awful at that tempo. Because the music is the ruling, you know, is the, is the ruling pattern of the experience, and um, though that's changing to a certain extent because of surtitles, because more theater directors are getting into opera, and because more singers are being trained to really act and like acting, 
a lot of really wonderful singers do love to act and work like actors, although they can't, but they'd like to. Imagine that they can. They can't because they have to sing. See, I mean, it's just they just have to. They're they're an instrument. So, what do you do as the director to help them develop the gestures or whatever can make them appear that they're they're acting? I kind of talk to them on two levels. Uh, I I talk to them very often as the stage director in an opera. You have to sort of sneak your direction in. You have to like lob it in around all the musical stuff because the conductor's in the room, the musical staff is in the room, the pianist, the coach is in the room. You know, you're you're surrounded by the music people, and and you and your assistant divvy up what you're going to do and like run in like like. Like I don't, I don't know what it's called in football, but you know those players that go around the side and get in and try to deal with it, and then get back out because you're very often you're in a music rehearsal, which has a strict amount of time and is going to end when it ends, and you have to get X amount of scenes done by the day by the time the day ends. It's completely different from working in the theater, um, and so you sort of tiptoe in, throw some notes in, back up and. They start over, or they jump on to another scene and won't do that scene for another two weeks. The thing about opera singers, though, is that unlike actors, they because they have musical minds and they understand music and they learn music, and they very often are keeping lots of scores in their heads. They're also keeping your direction in their heads in a way that actors don't. Actors work far more fluidly and loosely. Actors are far more instinctual and because of their instincts, which is what they're paid to have, they'll very often forget your direction or not remember it or what, you know. And you, you're, you're, you're reminding them where the production is kind of changing and they change the way they're acting. Singers, two weeks later, bingo, they're hitting their marks, they're acting that moment, they're, and you gave them that note or your assistant gave them that note as they were getting in their limo sometimes. Uh, uh, but they, they retain it. And when I first started directing opera, I mean real grown-up opera, I, I thought I, you know, it's going to be a disaster because I'm watching this rehearsal. There are no stops allowed. I've taken 3,000 notes with my assistant. And the assistant who, of course, all these assistants, they work in these houses and they, they're old hands. They go, you know, I'll give them the notes. <laughs> you know, and it's like tiny things, like just tiny little subtle things very often in a Strauss opera or a Mozart opera, which require a lot of filigree direction. Um, sure enough, you have 24 hours off. There's not even a rehearsal the next day. The voices have to rest. The repertory in the theater is doing something else. You come back, sometimes 48 hours later, second dress rehearsal. Everybody's in costume. Everybody's in wigs for the first time. Everybody's in makeup. You know how actors, for the first time, they're just sort of, they go back to being in a state of kind of prepubescent, I've got two lobsters on my hand. Why is this costume here? You know, all those things you do as an actor. This chair is too small, whatever. The singers are like sailing through it, doing your notes, looking magnificent in their clothes. I don't know how they do it, but it's a totally different way of, of working. And you, you also get, once you get acclimatized to it, you have enormous amounts of time off because they can't rehearse. So you have these long days. Uh, you know, once you get to dress rehearsals, they perform three hours a day, four hours a day, goodbye. Day off, next day, another three hours. You know, and you run into their dressing room, darling, how are you? Did you read my notes? You have some questions? Yes, no, boom. Bang. Downbeat, off we go. Four hours later, it's over. Production team is sitting there, you know, needing 
cardiac help, and you, you have another day. It's the weirdest, weirdest way of working. And you've somehow developed a balance between doing plays and doing operas. Is that the ideal situation? It is. I love it. Yeah. I have here the. <clears throat> this is the City Opera um, upcoming seasonal uh, brochure, and four productions this season have your name on them. <laughs> And I, so I, I was I was looking at this sort of amazed. I mean, two of them are productions that I guess you're not actually doing the stage direction of, mm -hmm. The Tusk and The Madame Butterfly, but you're doing a new production of Roberta Devereaux and then the uh, Access and Galatea that you're working on now. Mm -hmm. So that's four operas. Are you involved in The Tusk and Madame Butterfly even though... Uh, I'll come by and tweak, tweak a little bit. Plus you're doing... Uh, and Turn of the Screw. And, oh, and right. It's an old production. That's right, another one. Turn of the Screw, that's, that's five. City Opera Productions are going to have your stamp on it this season. It's like a, your season at City Opera. Plus, uh, Tiny Alice is going to be at second stage. So this freelance thing has uh, is working out pretty well for you, I guess. Great so far. <laughs> what, uh, what, what projects are out there? I asked this before. What projects uh, are out there that you really want to sink your teeth into that you haven't done yet? Mm. I'd love to do Lear, um, but it's so difficult because you can't can't do an eight performance schedule because you know no actor can do that so so it's I always propose it when I'm asked and <clears throat> you know it try to figure out a way that we could do it in repertory with something else so that the actor can have a night off um, but it never it never works out but I'd love to do Lear and I'd love to do I'd like to do Love's Labor's Lost very much um, I very very much and um, I also am beginning to work on a couple pieces that I'm making on, of my own. Um, one, a, um, and this is just a long, slow process of getting offers from sort of colleges, say, is there something you want to do? Would you like to come here for a few weeks and work with our students? And, and, uh, or, or regional theaters that have said, you know, do you want to develop a project in a workshop situation? So I'm, I'm uh, working on, in a very, very limited and early nascent way, a some kind of dramatization about the life of Pushkin and um, the poem of Gennon Yegin. Work out something about that. And um, also a piece, which I'm actually going to start working on at the University of Michigan next spring, and then the following fall, continue working on a Cal Arts in California about um, about coded homosexual themes in plays, or not coded. But, I mean, uh, uh, starting with the Children's Hour, the Lillian Hellman play, and then inter and weaving other texts into that, repeating it in. During a time when it was not yeah. appropriate to... You know, William Inge's plays, and, um, where, where, where all the homosexuality, and some of William's, is, is you know, under, the, under the surface. Partially at CalArts, because I can work with this marvelous video uh, artist who's there on the faculty, and a great puppet maker, and also 100 actors at my disposal. Not not for the piece, but I mean, they. I will audition 100 student actors for, I think, probably a nine-actor 
piece. So, and then try to move that on into maybe a real performance venue, like Hartford Stage or La Jolla Playhouse or something like that. But, so I'm, I'm just sort of interested in making my own pieces now a little bit more. See what that's like. I wanted to let everybody here have a chance to ask some questions of Mark as well. Since I've been hogging, I'll start back there. Yeah. I have a place like Not too much. Um, it's 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 a five week rehearsal, but you're sharing the singers who are young and often very very eager and terrific in that sense. Um, but you're sharing them with three other productions, so you spend days with nothing to do. You get your principles again, and then you finally get the twelve people that you're doing all this intricate choreographic movement with. But you're sharing them with, you know, this year Chris Alden, Jim Robert Robinson. Um, Someone else. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And it's and and uh, and I do sometimes, just sort of in a one-on-one way. But it is so different when they're when they're singing. They they're always having to keep an eye on the conductor, always having to think musically, and very often my work will will inhibit that. So it's a question I think for opera singers of being able to play this double track in their head. The good ones are very gifted. They're really amazing. Bill? Thank you. Thank you. Was in um, I think it was in response maybe to a question about design or what do, what do opera directors do, and uh, because so often they are sitting there in the dark, not able to really control the performance as much as the very obvious conductor who you see in the performance. The interviewer wondered, you know, what do you do? Are you there every night? Do you watch it? How do you? What, what's your effect on the production? And, and I think in opera, most particularly, you are so involved creating the conceptual whole that you're, you are visualizing the psychology of the music. And you very often just start by listening to the music of the piece, which is the, the inner and outer life of the piece, is in this abstraction called music. And very often, you know, what you see on stage is the uh, director... And and um, and uh, designers' response to pure music, which is different than what you would see in a in a straight play. Um, still, you're conceptualizing some kind of psychological nature in a play like Much Ado About Nothing, what have you. But more often than not, you get to do that much more in in opera. And that's really what I meant by that. You talked about. Um, Directing an actor, and suddenly something new is going on with that actor. 
uh, where does the actor start as a creative artist, and where does the director start as a creative artist, rather? Um, who, who instigates, you've cast, so... Yes, it's an it's a endlessly fascinating question you ask, because I think the greatest collaborations are those in which neither party knows quite who's responsible. You know, there's a, a sort of shared, um, shared, uh, intuitive, instinctual, creative spark that passes between you. Um, I feel that it's it's for me it's a combination of I know what what I know about a text or what I think about a text, and then I always am looking to be inspired by actors. So I they're muses, you know they're muses. They're they will embody the work. They'll send they'll stamp the letter to the world and send it out. When I the last time I acted in a play, I had already been directing for a few years, and I remember thinking, boy, acting is an art. Directing is, is really a craft, but acting is an art. And as difficult sometimes as you, as difficult as times can be with actors, they get difficult when the, when the muse aspect of them breaks down, when they're not inspiring the rehearsal, when they're not being responsible for their role when they're not feeling empowered themselves. Sometimes that has to do with you. Sometimes it has to do with all the baggage you bring to each other that's parent-child oriented, which is a lot in rehearsal. Essentially, without the actor, you don't have a production. Without the singer, you don't have it at the moment. And it's, it's hard to say where that begins very often, but I think the worst kind of actors for me are those who just want to do exactly as I say, or those who resist everything. Because ultimately, you've got to be, to a certain extent, you've got to be led a little bit or inspired to a certain extent. One of the hardest things, too, I find is, is or one of the most challenging, it's not hard, is, is letting the actors know that they, early on in the process, they must take the play. They must hold the play. They will be the play. You will be in the dark. You will go away. And no matter what you say to them, no matter how you influence them, however it comes out, comes out their way. They may feel constrained by you, they may feel inspired by you, they may feel inhibited by you, whatever, uh, or, or that you're demanding too much or too little, but essentially they are the actor, and you are just one of the negotiators. A production is, is a series of negotiations. It's just a series of negotiations. There's the author, dead or alive, the director, the designers, actors. And you're all negotiating with each other and with the text to get to some place that works for this particular group of negotiators, artistic negotiators. Uh, and it'll be different with a different actor in the role. It would be different if we did it two months from now. You know, That sense of fluidity, that sort of Ovidian sense of transformative, of the transformative and ephemeral nature of the theater, I think also is something that is very good for actors to know about understand that this is we're not writing this in clay you're not going to be you're not going to be on film this is just today this is just the show we're doing now you know bring me who you are now and let's let's kick off yes in fact yeah. uh you <laughs> um speaking of negotiations are you in dialogue with uh Peter Aldi currently and where do you find yourself in the play of the 
I am in a lot of dialogue with Edward, and uh, a lot more dialogue now than he ever had with me when we were doing it at Hartford Stage. Um, but it's mostly about casting. Um, uh, we don't talk about the play at all, and haven't. And I've never asked him any questions about it. You know, I just, it's such a strange play uh, that basically what I said to the actors was, um, you know, we'll spend some time now on this first two days talking about what you think the play means. And here are these essays, you know, that you can all take home and read. You can talk to your blue in the face and we can have a big discussion about Christ and Mary and sex and religion and blah, all these issues that are in the play uh, and sexuality, homo and hetero, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, when we get into tomorrow's rehearsal, all we are going to be able to deal with is the moment-to-moment reality of what you're feeling right then. And if you flip out into another kind of personality in the middle of that scene, you need to find a reality for yourself to do that and not base it in any kind of allegorical interpretation of the meaning of the play. What does the seagull mean? What does three sisters mean? What does true West mean? You don't think about meaning, you know, nor should the actors. Um, and in a funny way, I mean, Edward never talks about what anything means. Um, he doesn't feel he needs to. He feels it's all in the play. He says that right up front. And um, when invited to uh, talk to the actors at the first rehearsal about the play, he said, I, the, play's, the play will tell them what I felt. You know, but good for you. And then we just had a ball. I don't know what it's going to be like this time, but I mean, the five actors I did it with the first time because we were kind of freed from meaning. What, 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 what the production turned out to be was a series of kind of acting exercises, split-second timing, um, these incredibly repetitive, strange tropes that the playwright gets into in the play, these passionate monologues that burst forth and go on and develop and develop and develop. Very difficult to memorize because the actor has to sort of make all these connections. And frankly, I, I disavowed my... my I, I wasn't of any help to them. In that. I just said, I will tell you when I stop believing what you're doing. That's all I can do because I have no idea what this play means. And I think the less I know, the happier, the better I'm going to be at this. Um, and it became... It was very interesting. I, it wasn't a play I ever wanted to do. It was kind of foisted on me in a funny way. I did it, it was my very last play in Hartford. I did it after I'd left. I came back just at the end of the season. It was done because Edward, Edward called us, as I recall. He says he didn't, but I, I never wanted to do the play. And Richard Thomas wanted to do the play very badly. And Edward loved the idea of Richard doing the play. And Albie had been a big part of my predecessor's uh, work at the theater. Paul Widener had done all of all these plays with Edward, so Edward knew Hartford quite well, or liked the whole venue there. And I don't know, I just thought, I, I have nothing to say with this play. I don't know what it's about. But because of that freedom again, you know, because of not going in all beady eyed every day, it was just about is this funny? Is this moving? Is this theatrical? Do I believe it? Moment by moment by moment. And then there, there's some of the things which I love best in. In any art form, painting, music, theater, opera, I love those places that you don't understand. I think the things that are mysteries are 
are sometimes the most marvelous things to to experience in art. Um, and 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 you know, one of the great I think things about Tiny Alice is that as soon as you think you grasp what it's about, it stops being about that, and you you can either get frustrated and walk out, or you can treat it the way you treat, I suppose, life or religion, religious ecstasy, if you are religious, or even not. Mysticism in some way, shape, or form. The characters change the way characters change in murder mysteries, suddenly revealing that they have the soul of a killer when you thought they didn't, when you thought they were the opposite. So all of his, all of the sort of ways and means of the play are, are rather easy to grasp. And they're feasts for actors because they have to be as dazzling as they would be in, say, a stop art play. Well, why go back to it again? Why do you want to do it again? Um, Because it was such a success in Hartford that uh, there was much interest in bringing it to New York. So we were going to bring it right to New York, and Edward wanted to change the leading lady, and and that search ended in many crashed and burned interviews and lunches. uh, Because... uh, the best of them, I'm sure she wouldn't mind at all. I mean, any actress who takes the part wouldn't mind. But Edward thought she was perfect, and I thought she was perfect. It was the perfect actress to play Tiny Alice. Her name is Kathleen Turner. And the minute Edward said, what about Kathleen Turner? I said, that's perfect. That's absolutely exactly how I see this part. He said, I'm having lunch with her next week. She wants to do, she wants to work with me. She wants to do this play. I'll let you know. Well, you know, the phone rang, and it was Kathleen Turner. And with that whiskey voice and all of that kind of marvelous, sexy, sort of phony, sort of actressy, sort of real, sort of everything that Alice is, you know, just everything, plus this beautiful, this beautiful womanly woman. Um, And she said, she said, I'd love to work with you. I'd love to work with Edward. I really want to, you know, when, when... when Virginia Woolf comes around, please direct it. But she said, this play, this part is the part. It's a series of attitudes. I said, it took me six weeks to convince an actress of that, and you, you, you know it by reading the play. She said, I want a part that eviscerates me. I want a part where I, I can't sleep at night. I want to play Martha when I go back to the theater. Or, or you know, I want to play a part that's complex. She said, this is a series of sort of facets, acting exercises. I said, you are absolutely right which is the main reason why you'd be wonderful in this part. Because <laughs> um, you, you just get that. She said, I can do that at the drop of a hat. She said, I do that when the camera rolls. I don't need to go on stage and do it. She said, so purely personally, much as I'd love to do this, much as I'd love to do you and Edward, I'm not going to. But I thought, wow, you know, she nailed it. She knew exactly what the part was, was about. And I, you know, every actress who's come on to it, who we've offered it to, and we've offered it now to a number, um, of people like that, I mean, people of that sort of name value, they've all said parts like that. Why does the play end with a four-page monologue for the male character, the male movement? So is it cast? No. Cast? No, it's cast. No, so you can't reveal to us the... Uh, yes. Uh, when you do a straight play, do you block it in your head first, or do you block it in rehearsal? I block it in rehearsal. I just work, I work off the balls of my feet. Block it while I'm watching the actors. Is there anything you can tell us about an approach to directing Shakespeare? That's, that's kind of a big general question. Any little bit. One, 
one tidbit. <laughs> Never let it stop talking. Never let one scene end and another start. Always make sure that the end of one scene and the beginning of the next scene is just is a, is a synaptic jump to the next tonal color of the piece. Play the productions of Shakespeare, which I think fail or stand at risk of failing, are productions in which the director, for one reason or another, has such so many ideas that he or she wants to sort of get them out on stage inside the immense ideas that are already there with Shakespeare. And all of Shakespeare's immense ideas are carried in language, pure and simple. He wrote for a theater with no scenery until the last few plays, which are about scenery. So I'm not talking really about the Tempest or Two Noble Kinsmen as much as I'm talking about everything else in canon. When a Shakespeare play doesn't work for me is when there's so much visual activity going on that it fights with the linguistic music. And the language of the play, for better or for worse, is, is the hook to the evening. And, and a modern-day audience at 8 o'clock at night coming into a theater after dinner after the babysitter, etc., after a day of work, and hearing iambic pentameter, the work they have to do must be helped by you in the first five minutes of the play. I, w I always lavish more time on the first five minutes of a Shakespeare production than any other moment in the play. <clears throat> My time, not the actor's time. They all get terribly bored and antsy because I always am going back to the beginning. But the audience, it's like going into another... It's like landing at Orly Airport and you don't speak French. You have to make them understand that A, it's an evening about listening, which they're not used to in that way, and B, that the talking will never stop. Never stop. So that even a scene like uh, the beginning of the Capulet Ball, which, you know, notoriously you will feel you have to set up a great deal of visual stuff. And you do. You do. You have to set it up en passant. You have to set it up as the language is going. You, know, you, have to, you have to make sure that the language is always the spine of every moment of the evening. Then you get your desserts. You get to have dessert. Occasionally you, you can pull out into a big visual emotional moment at the end of an act, say before an intermission, or once you've, once you've finished a whole arc of a number of scenes and you're going into sort of a minor key after a bunch of major keys, then okay, do it. But otherwise, if you interrupt the language too much, you, you, you deaden the evening. And, and then, then the audience is saying, gosh, this is hard to understand. You know, like, as much as I admired very, very much of Julie Taymor's film of Titus Andronicus, because she's so visually oriented, the verse stopped so often, you know, and you, you always had to then gear back up as they began speaking play. Here's one of the earliest plays. Here's one, here's one that was really done on a plank and a passion. There was not a piece of scenery on stage. You know, maybe there were some buckets of blood, but not another thing. And as visually stimulating as that film was to watch, still nothing was as stimulating as... as say, Tony Hopkins speaking those, speaking those words. And I'm not a big fan of British actors doing Shakespeare, but I must admit that when he spoke, I felt I was finally getting the play. You know, that's my main 
point of advice about it. And as visual as you can be with Shakespeare, and you can be very visual, it's wonderful. And the costumes can be wonderful, fascinating, interesting, modern dress, what have you. The play must never stop talking to the audience. And, and sure enough, you'll notice that if you do that, it is over in two and a half hours. It's not an endless evening in the theater. It's, it's moves, you know. And you can also get the actors to speak more quickly. Once the language of the play is in place, two scenes have gone by at a certain pace, the pace can then begin to mobilize behind. The pace can pick up. Um, then as you introduce a new character into the play, you slow down again, and he becomes part of the fabric, and that speeds up. Because a Shakespeare play is like, you know, it's like, it's like a glass-cut ball. It's a, each scene is another facet of a central concern. And if you as a director understand, and you can with Shakespeare, the idea behind the play, there is one idea generally behind a Shakespeare play. And you can find that idea, and you'll see that each scene is another way of looking at that idea by this brilliant Renaissance mind. Looking back into the past, forward into the future, with everything that he knew, straddling antiquity and you know, the world to come, as the Renaissance mind was doing for the sort of 14 years in England. And, and he takes this idea and then facets it, facets it, facets it. And the idea is, you know, essentially, if you kind of know your Bible, if you know the New Testament, you can pretty much locate what the play's about because it will fall on the side of of redemption of, you know, it, it'll, that's where it goes. And, and each play, each play will have that idea. And each scene, if you just nail it out with a dramaturg, what this scene says about the whole, you, you, have, a, you have a map for yourself. And you can put the actors onto that map and say, here's what this scene's about, and here's where you have to, with a Shakespeare play, you're, it's not like something like Tiny Alice where you're, or, or the seagull where you're saying, let's, let's, let's play the scene for every moment of reality. Mm-mm. Reality really is, is secondary because the reality in a Shakespeare play is carried linguistically. So you need to find out how to convey the idea as you're moving towards the next idea and from the idea you've just, you just located and talked about and how the idea comes up verbally how it must, you know, no idea in a Shakespeare play happens in stasis or silence. They happen, you know, they vomit themselves out. And they're based on other people's vomitings of linguistics. So as long as you're trusting always the speech and locating what's happening in the speech, you never need to pause. And in fact, if you have directed Shakespeare, you'll notice that if you go back four weeks into the run, no one's pausing. You know, they're not pausing because they know they figured it out. They figured out from hearing the audience that they can't. That they, you know, suddenly, you know, it's three it's three minutes shorter the playing time because nobody's jerking off anymore. Nobody's giving us their great acting moments. And if they don't, then there's always that place. Then there's the moment where, you know, Lady M in the Scottish play can have this great moment at the end of the banquet in silence. Then there's the moment where Hamlet can look for 30 seconds at the skull of Yorick, although he won't. Not any Hamlet worth his salt won't. He won't be able to. He'll have to talk. Um, But I mean, those are those moments that you can find that that just give like a pausa in music, you know, 
a symphony or a, or a sonata, it can be visual and very beautiful, silence and beautiful, and on you go. Also, when you're when you're working on Shakespeare, trust trust the way he will interplay male and female voices. How often in a Shakespeare play you will be only hearing male voices for like two scenes, and then all of a sudden the first female voice comes in. Now it was a boy, but still, you know, it's music. It's 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 real music. And when you're casting it, you're casting very often for kind of those sounds. Good answer to that question. Uh, there's a question in the back. <laughs> Your, your descriptions of the way you work, uh, for me, are reinforcing the description that you that you offered earlier. You said you you do the intellectual work in your studio, and then you come up with a concept either by yourself or in conjunction with a client, etc. And then you you leave yourself very open to what happens. And in the case of a play like Tiny Alice, the play became, I gather, not only something that you didn't expect it to become, but something that you didn't even know what it. My question is, does that happen in other situations to the point where the math that you've set out can perhaps be lost and therefore what you wind up is something that is, is some, you know, you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm phrasing it. You are, you are, yeah. Um, it happens for me more in opera because opera is so concept-driven that if, almost invariably, uh, if, if the conception of the work is kind of out there, I get very, very frightened as we get into dress rehearsals because I feel as if I'm lost in my own conception. I mean, that I've sort of trapped myself in some bubble that isn't going to serve piece. Now this bubble is costumes and sets and lights that haven't been there for the four weeks of the rehearsal hall time. But that's when I feel it the most. Generally with a text-driven experience, I don't. I mean, I'll have terrible questions about Jesus. Should we have really uh, uh, should we really, do we really need that extra set device that we have? You know, maybe we don't. But hopefully you catch that while you're working and there's time to talk to the the designers and the tech staff and say, drop this now, or no, we don't need this costume, or yes, we do need four more tapes Do we have the budget for it. But rarely far down the line, except with opera. With opera, it's always very scary, this last moment where they jump at the costume. It's, it's an honor in front of you. Did you ever say to yourself, well, gee, that production doesn't really work for me, even though oh, I directed it, now it doesn't work? Not, I'm not talking about what it really for the audience, for the mm-hmm. critics or anything, but for you personally. Because I was sort of going on that same line, like, is it, did it end up somewhere that you weren't expecting? And that could be a great thing sometimes, but maybe other times it's not. Maybe it's, it, it then it becomes that, you know, you, you're saying something all of a sudden, or you're telling the story in a way that you really didn't want to, or you're not, that telling, only the happens, or you're not telling the story. Right. That only happens to me if I'm doing a very naturalistic play, and one or the other of the performances quite get there. Where you're, where you're doing a play where you are really totally reliant for the success of the evening on acting. Really nothing else but acting. And the performer can't quite get there. You, if the play is good, you know, I'm talking about, I'm not saying a new play or you don't quite know how 
how it's going to be until you spank the baby and an audience is listening. Critics come and all of that. But I mean, a, a, a good, solid play, you get to a point where, for me, the only disappointment comes in just seeing that he can't hit the ball. He just he can't do it. You can't. It's too late to replace him for whatever reason. Off you go. You're only, in those kinds of plays, you really are only as good as those performances. I mean, yeah, you do your traffic, you do your choreography, all of which is based on what they need, and what the playwright needs for them to go to this cabinet or that sink or the dining room or what have you. You're, you have much less control over, over how it will end. That's why someone like Dan Sullivan, for instance, I think is so brilliant at casting. Dan just has this perfect eye for casting. I mean, genius. And, and when, that, when he doesn't get the actors he wants... You can see the ball drop a little bit. And speaking about someone I admire enormously, we're friends. Uh, but you know, you—that's his—that's his Achilles heel. I have mine, but I mean that his is that. And when he doesn't have the, that inspiring actor, who he almost knows just almost exactly what she'll do, and just kind of edges her towards it, she trusts him. You know, um, when he doesn't have that, you see, you see the. <laughs> I think I think casting. I mean, I I I worry when I cast. I you know I'm I've I've made some terrible mistakes casting, and I've made them you know with mind you the casting director, <laughs> three other people, uh, all of us loving the same person, but it's the wrong. It's, it's still, even in a, in a very concept-driven production, it's, it's, it's such a huge part of your success quotient. Oh, yeah. Of course. Uh, yes, back to my... Sorry. Yeah. Um, if you're going to approach a new play, or you, you don't know anything, you don't spank the baby, um, what is your relationship like with the author? Have you talked a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It changes, of course, author to author. Um, uh, some want to talk a lot about the play. Some even will improvise dialogue while you're working with the actors. Some you'll improvise dialogue with him or her. Uh, sometimes uh, he won't want to be present for many days at a time and then come back in and have something done for him. Um, but essentially, uh, it's a very much more straightforward way of working. It's also a little bit easier to cast because his eye, her eye, is is there with you. And so something that you thought, I mean, almost always with a living writer, um, if I get kind of fixated about an actor, the writer, and the writer isn't that crazy about it, I'll drop that actor and go with where he thinks we should move. So I feel a little more support in that area because he has such a vision of what, what he what he's hearing. So you really listen to that vision? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the new plays I've done so far, they've, they've been mostly naturalistic to a certain extent. And as such, all very much about having the author be as happy as he could be. Certainly Time has gone really fast this afternoon. We have set time for a couple more. Yeah. 
Buett's musician, actor, then became a director. Where do directors come from? What is the training? What? How do you see the background? Oh, you know, I'm always asked that question, and I never really have an answer for it. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I was so lucky, and it just happened in such an odd, capricious way, that I don't. I'm not an authority on this. I think you know, assisting can be good. <laughs> um, because you at least you get you, you you get in the world of it to a certain extent. Um, perhaps too much assisting can start to get sort of stultifying. Um, I don't know where they come from. I do know that a lot more people would like to do it than there are jobs for. That's for sure. It's it's terrifying. How that college directing course. Maybe, maybe. You know, I, I really don't know. I think sometimes directors surprise themselves that they have a talent for directing. I mean, I never thought I'd be a director. I really, really didn't. I wanted to be an actor. I was convinced I'd be an actor till the day I died. So directing was a complete surprise to me. And when I finally accepted it as what I really, I realized this is what I was put on the planet to do, I loved it. But up until then, I, I thought, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing this little show on the side now. I've got to audition for a number of other plays and commercials and stuff. I, I, you know, I think some directing programs in some of these MFA things are, are terrific for people. And you know, like the one at Juilliard that Joanne and Garland had. I think Joanne is still there. Now, I don't know if she, she's gone to Bard. So, but there were just three directors a year, you know, and they would. It was very, very intimate and. And when I have an assistant who, you know, I feel, certainly on opera, not, not really often with these big Shakespeare plays, but with an opera where the assistant is so necessary to the process, so much has to get done, um, very often I'll just say to her, you know, can you, do you feel comfortable if I give you this to map out with these 22 people? Map that out and I will come in and fiddle with it. And I know I'll change some stuff that you do, but if you're okay with that, don't feel compromised, do you feel comfortable taking that rehearsal and getting them started that way, you know, um, or giving them even in some cases, I think Guthrie was wonderful at this, he'd give an assistant a big scene like Astroff Yelena because he didn't want to deal with the actors <laughs> um, and let them work together, you know. And I've done also scenes where, I mean, after I've blocked a lot of a big play like Per Gint or Shakespeare play, and I don't want to get muddled in the moment where the actor is trying to unify remembering lines, remembering locking, and thinking about the character afresh. I try to stay out of the room and give those rehearsals to an assistant so that he can, first of all, get all the flack that they feel like giving me. He can, he can hear all that, their, all their concerns. I won't jump the gun too quickly in terms of changing their performance or my own work. Um, and they can feel free to sort of take the piece on. Very often, I've noticed that assistants thrown into that position really learn to swim and start to think about directing on their own more. But it's, I, all the young directors I know are constantly looking for work, constantly looking for an opening. And, you know, and all the rest of us can do is sort of try to recommend them or or, or I think in, in the case of being an artistic director, try to find ways of hiring them, even though you are having to deliver up to a subscription program, for the most part, six mature directors with a, with a track record. You 
can't really look at a board of directors and say, I'm using four young directors in a season of eight plays in, in, in a big A or B theater. Um, very, very tough. Unfortunately, on that note, we're going to have to finish up, but I hope you'll join me in thanking our... Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.